1: Let's get these uh, some handle uh, get get a handle on these markets, which they continue to rip. The S and P 500 up about 1.5 percent. Nasdaq uh, even stronger, up point 1.9 percent. on the back of that, better than expected inflation data. Let's check in with Vince Signorella, global macro strategist with Bloomberg News. Vince, I mean, you know, we had really good jobs numbers last week. We got better than expected inflation here. The White House is. Rightfully so, taking a victory lapse here. What do you make of it, and what do you make of the market's response?
3: Well, I think the market response is is somewhat appropriate. We're seeing a couple of things. We're obviously seeing a bid in risk. We're seeing energy prices coming off as inflation rolls over. The interesting thing is I'm talking to some traders this morning. They're a little confused about the Treasury uh, market move is selling in the um, in the back end. But what that represents is there's been such a big trade on inflation being sort of just here for the next six, maybe 12 months. And so there's been a lot of selling in the front end, but, um, buying in the back end. The trader's now reversing that trade. And so we're seeing some uh, widening, uh, n- narrowing of the inversion in the twos, tens, and that's what's driving that. I, I, I would like to point out, and you know I've been beating this drum for a while now about how the Fed's forecast has been terrible and that this is a transient situation and they're just just rushing into something and not giving the economy a chance to catch up from the, the pandemic infusion of a huge amount of money and uh, keeping rates basically far too low for too long with a higher balance sheet. The Fed is actually operating, if you look at this situation, equate this to the Fed being like a Fortune 500 company. They're trying to match uh, quarterly estimates to what the market is expecting and they they keep missing the mark and for the fed it's an even worse case basis because they're being held accountable for monthly numbers and so we keep hearing from them don't watch monthly numbers don't watch monthly numbers we get a high jobs report what do they do oh we have to say higher for longer because of higher jobs they they're just not credible i i honestly just don't know why people keep trying to trade what the fed says and losing money by by that for for example when it, it it's It's insane. I mean, there are academics who've never said the word done.
2: But, Vince, uh, so you don't expect the Fed to stick to a Volcker-like rate rise regime. You think at some point this Fed is going to turn around and start cutting rates?
3: I I don't know that they're going to cut rates, per se, because we still have inflation a long, long way away from where they want to see it. So there's no real reason to cut rates, but they really need to stop and give the the monetary policy a chance to work its way through the system. Monetary policy— But we're only at 2.5%. Under-
2: like, that's still uh, still nothing.
3: Such, of course. But yeah. why is everybody in such a hurry to get rates right to the 5%? Monetary policy doesn't react on a daily basis. I saw a, a tweet from someone today who said, oh, my cup of coffee went down from 875 to 850. I mean, to expect prices to come. To, I mean, to expect prices to come down. Dude, Paul overnight. checks
2: the gas prices every day. single day. <laughs> Plus, he checks regular, and we all know that he tanks premium. So, yeah,
3: might see. That's. I feel sorry for those out there on the premium scale. That but,
2: is, but, uh, but. Uh, so, so that we've heard a lot of Fed speakers talk about the importance of front loading. I don't personally know what it is, why they I, would I want to front load,
3: they, but because they think that inflation is going to go to five percent and stay there. They could not be more dead wrong. And I'll tell you exactly why and why this isn't the 70s. And if I hear it one more time, I'm going to throw a textbook at someone. If if you have wage gains that are not above capital letters, above the inflation rate, you cannot have sustained inflation. The consumer will pull back. They have absolutely no choice. You can't spend what you don't have. Savings have cratered. Disposable income is cratered. Wages aren't keeping pace with inflation. Revolving credit is the highest it's been since 2008. And that's credit card debt. Where does the Fed think this money is coming from? It certainly ain't coming in my next pay hike from Bloomberg. I can tell you
2: that much. <laughs> Well, I mean, so, in, at, well, yesterday we watched the president sign a bill that's going to give $52 billion in subsidies to chip makers. Those are private companies, you know owned by shareholders, not government companies. Um, so he's gonna give them the biggest subsidy boost we've ever seen the federal government hand out. And that's one place the money can come from.
3: Two things about that bill. Number one, they've got more chips than they know what to do with right now because they front-loaded, lovely phrase, they're buying from Taiwan, because they thought there was going to be this indefinite shortage, the U.S. companies in the chip industry are 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 they still get their chips from Taiwan and then they repurp them for their customers. They're, so their end users users are still paying high prices. The subsidies are going to be a future situation, which will of course help curb inflation because that will bring prices down. The other part of that bill, which I love, which was the EV makers, auto analysts are basically saying hardly any cars are going to meet the standards that the government has put in that bill to meet the credit. Mm, so well,
2: I don't, I don't know, Vince. I mean, they, they're extending a credit or giving a broader credit to automakers or to, to, to consumers, rather, um, to buy EVs that are already sold out with a two-year waiting list. So exactly. they're just pumping so much money into this system. Um, a lot of people would argue for no reason. And that's what causes well, inflation. It,
3: there's a very there's a very good reason. We have midterm elections coming up in November. That's the only reason for this bill, and <laughs> it's the only reason why all those credits don't show up until 2023. Because if they showed up now and no one could buy those cars because they can't either find them or or the credit doesn't apply to them, it wouldn't do a damn thing. So the whole thing is the whole thing's ridiculous.
2: By the Maybe way, by the way, you want to hear ridiculous? People. They're going to so extend the credit, it's a $7500 federal credit for electric vehicles like the Ford Lightning. Yeah. Paul and I Boom. are big fans of the Ford Lightning. It's yep. an awesome car. Yep. It's a $100,000 truck <laughs> and Ford just raised the price of it by $8,500. I saw that.
3: There you go. I saw that yesterday. Exactly.
2: So But you're going to get, get a $7,500 credit. <laughs>
3: who's who's that who's that subsidy for? You know what the most interesting thing that uh, absolutely no one is talking about? It was a few days ago The New York Fed did their consumer expectation survey. Do you know of which income group sees the inflation moderating the most? Those people who make less than $50,000. The people most impacted by inflation. Who live paycheck to paycheck expect prices to come down, and why? Because they're beginning to see it. They wouldn't expect it otherwise. So where is this inflation coming from? You get Fed's mester saying it's not affecting me. Well, thank you very much. Nice to be in the one yes. percent where you can afford it daily, anything. Mary Good daily. For you. Yeah, she I said. Mean,
2: she said, I know prices are going up, but it doesn't bother me because I have enough money. I'll tell,
3: you, <laughs> I'll tell you. I'll tell you a truth. When I was trading at U.S. Bank, we replaced the global FX manager with a lawyer. Who knew nothing about FX and rates? My cousin was trading at Citibank at the time. I told him what was going on. He said, "Best you start looking for a job because n- anyone who's never said the word done is not somebody you want to work for in a risk market." So we are trying to follow a Fed where the only person who's ever had a real job is Powell, and they keep telling us what's going to happen to a rates and FX, and they've never done a trade in their life. Why does that make me feel good about these people? Why why are they credible to anybody?
1: So. Just ten ten seconds. What context do you say done as a trader?
3: Done as a trader is you actually do a trade. Somebody says to you, "Make me a price." You do the deal, and you say done. Done. You know I what that, that,
1: that. That's all awesome. Right. That's trader speak. There. This is what we. Yeah. That's this is why, what we, this is why we. This is why we have you on, Vince. Yeah. Shot out of a cannon, Vince Signorella. He does all this strategy stuff. He's traded rates. He's traded FX. God knows what else he's traded. Probably you know, standing in the pits trading. Crude oil for all we know, but uh, he's at Bloomberg at news. He talks to traders all the time, and we'd love to get his call on these markets, particularly when you've got a big, big move like we do today.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
1: Let's bring in Lindsay Piegza, She is the chief economist for Stiefel. Lindsay, you know, I'm not an economist, thank goodness, um, but I do know a good labor market last week. I do see the print here on inflation today. Things look pretty good. How do you put it all together?
4: Well, I think from the standpoint of the labor market, last Friday's jobs numbers showed, as the Fed has described the labor market, still solid growth keeping the Fed's eye on the inflation ball at this point. While we could argue that the recessionary boxes have been checked for the consumer, for manufacturing, for housing, the the labor market has really been that silver lining. But from an inflationary standpoint, this morning's number was a little bit mixed. It did give the more dovish uh, lean as we look at some of those numbers. Now, the reprieve was very minimal. And for the average American household, lower gas prices, while welcomed, does not offset the painfully high costs on nearly every other component of their monthly expenditures. But still, it was a step in the right direction. So looking at investors' bets, we do see that lean towards a smaller 50 basis point increase as opposed to 75 next month.
2: But why? But if you're the Fed um... – wouldn't you want to just stay on course regardless of this, you know, one data point does not a trend make.
4: Oh, absolutely. So yeah. this this is the, the the problem. The market is anxious to call a peak in inflation. The market is anxious for the Fed to signal they're almost done fighting inflation, they're going to start to decelerate. Me too. But the Fed has been very clear that they're keeping their eye on the ball. They're going to continue to raise rates until they're convinced by several consecutive reports That inflation is on a meaningful and sustainable downward trend back towards that 2% inflation target. So right now, the the market is questioning the Fed's resolve to remain resilient. The Fed says it will. Whichever blinks first is going to determine the directional momentum of rates from here. By the
2: way, Lindsay, I also am anxious um, to have seen the peak in inflation. And I'm anxious to uh, see the Fed slow down its rate hikes. But – Does it really is it really a bad thing for the economy if the Fed keeps raking rate uh, rate, hiking rates so long as inflation continues to come down and we have these, you know, five hundred thousand job additions?
4: Well I suppose it depends if you want to take your medicine now or if you want to kick that down the road. If the Fed decides to take a more benign policy pathway and doesn't root out the inflation dragon, then we may run into the scenario of still elevated prices but now we have much more a, a much more prolonged period of very minimal growth or the conditions lining up for stagflation. If, however, the Fed is willing to push us into maybe a temporarily deeper recessionary uh, position, but get inflation under control, then we can talk about a more robust recovery on the flip side.
1: Lindsay, I'm trying to make the case to my bosses that they should send me out to uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Uh, Tell us what happens in Jackson Hole, Wyoming in the month of August every year, and should we pay attention?
4: Well, traditionally, the Fed has used the Jackson Hole meeting to give an increased assessment or an updated assessment of where policymakers are in terms of the longer term view for the policy pathway. But this time around, it's unlikely to warrant much attention, as we've already heard from the chairman, that decisions on policy are not being made on a longer term, um, Ah, a, a longer term assessment of the economy, but they're being made meeting to meeting. So, just like the market is overreacting arguably to one data point, so too is the Fed basing next month's decision on the incoming data, the latest incoming data.
2: All right. So what are your expectations, Lindsay, for the U.S. economy? Um, Do we see in 2023 inflation cooling back down closer to the 2% level? And do we have a recession?
4: Well, that's that's a, those are some big questions there. First off, I, I do think that growth remains very minimal throughout the year, a, and I do think that looking backwards, the NBER will eventually acknowledge a recession started either in the first or the second quarter. Really, from an inflation, from With three and a half percent unemployment. Absolutely, because I think the three and a half percent unemployment rate is not necessarily capturing. The full, the full sense of what's happening in the labor market. Remember, the, the, the growth that we've seen in job creation is less about new jobs being created and more about old jobs being replaced. Remember, as of July, that's when we recaptured the full 22 million jobs lost during the Great Recession. So over True. the past 18 months, essentially we've just clawed back to where we were. We're not talking about new job creation above and beyond the ones lost. Good point. So I do think when we look at the loss of real income, the decline in manufacturing, the loss in real spending, top line GDP in negative territory, even though the employment numbers are giving us an Mm. artificial sense of solidity I think that we are in recessionary condition
1: I don't know my my third of my fourth children actually got a real real job as they call it so to me that is a wicked strong labor market so Lindsay Piegza, (laughs) thanks so much for joining us chief economist managing director uh, at Stiefel giving us uh, her thoughts here we love talking to Lindsay Uh, a nice perspective to the market here talking to Bloomberg's Vince Signorella uh, just uh, earlier this morning and he was making a comment talking about chips and he sent along uh, some news here demand for chips is collapsing just as President Biden signs a bill to jump start more US chip making which is very interesting because we've got some very mixed to uh, bad numbers coming out of some of these chip makers over the last few days and it kind of just kind of goes to this you know strategic importance of having chip manufacturing in the US Keith Kroc uh, joins us. He's the founder of Kroc Institute for Tech Diplomacy at Purdue University, West Lafayette, Indiana. Some really good stuff there they do at Purdue. Some smart engineering geeks there at Purdue, no question about it. Hey, Keith, talk to us about this chip business, because at the beginning of the pandemic, when China shut down, we all sh- the whole world shut down, we said, oh boy, we need chips for a lot of stuff, and we don't really make a lot of chips here. So the talk really ramped up of, you know, kind of onshoring some chip manufacturing capability. And I think that's what the CHIPS Act uh, does. How should we think about that?
5: Well, I'll tell you what, fellas. Um, I'm here in Washington, D.C. I was invited yesterday uh, by the White House uh, for, the, for the signing. Uh, it was a great day uh, for America, for national security, for global economic security and long-term prosperity. You know, when you talk about uh, these quarterly results for the chip makers, I would not be worried about that at all because this chip business is growing so fast. You know, a slowdown from that means, you know, on the average, it goes from a 40 percent growth down to 20 percent growth. We're under capacity. Now, you know, let me tell you why uh, this is such an important bipartisan, you know, 280 billion dollar bill. First of all, it's about securing the semiconductor supply chain. That is critical for national security. The second is this investment, which now is going to result in a $350 billion uh, in in, uh, chip manufacturing in the United States and help us maintain that lead, as well as a $200 billion investment uh, with direct funds in R&D. And what that's going to drive is jobs, 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 and not just any kind of jobs, highly skilled jobs. And I think I think you fellas understand that you know our adversaries play in a four-dimensional game of diplomatic, economic, military, and cultural chess. That's John, and they're playing. Well, and the they, they're play doing
2: play it the same way we are, right? They have this centrally controlled economy. They're just uh, passing out money to companies and deciding who are winners and losers. I don't understand this. I don't get why. And you got your MBA at Harvard, so you probably know better than I do. You know, he, did, he why, recently got a Ph.D. in
1: some engineering stuff. So, but why, I,
2: on the economic side, why don't we let the mar- the free market decide? Or if it's such a national security issue, why don't we take over this industry? Like, Why are we halfway here between like um, state-controlled socialism and free market capitalism? What are we doing, Keith? These companies already make a lot of money. These shareholders have already gotten very rich. Why are we giving them, you know, billions, tens and tens of billions of dollars in government subsidies?
5: Right. I'll tell you exactly why. So my last role was undersecretary of state for economic growth, energy, and the environment. Before that, I ran three public companies. I've been in Silicon Valley most of my career. And... Here's what's ha- we invented the semiconductor business. Here's what happened. Countries, particularly Asian countries, realized how strategic it is, and they subsidized these semiconductors. So they literally pulled it off our shores. And the investment that goes into these manufacturing facilities is humongous. We did the largest onshoring in history when I was under Secretary of State, $12 billion dollars. For one of the most sophisticated chip plants ever, and by the way, that has fifteen hundred workers on the production floor, and sixty percent of them are either master's degrees or PhDs, and we lost that talent.
1: All right, so give us a sense of just how strategic you think onshoring some of this capability is, because again, it became acutely aware, even to lay people like myself, that. Uh, you know, when China shuts down, Taiwan shuts down, for whatever reason, that's a problem. Matt Miller can't get his Chevy Well, and you should know, we be Chevy doing truck. it
2: for other industries? Should we be doing it? Exactly. Yep. It's taken me so long to get this truck from Chevrolet. I'm very excited. It's apparently coming yep. this month, yep. and I cannot wait. It's the ZR2, um, which I'm so pumped about. But, you know, <laughs> if, if we're doing this for chips, why aren't we doing it for planes or
5: uh, trains or automobiles? Well— this is first of all semiconductors is the most important industry in the world because it lays the foundation not only for everything in the tech area but as you guys were saying in the, in the automotive field in the energy field you know in the aerospace uh field so the important thing is to secure uh, this supply line. You guys saw what happened during during the pandemic. So, uh, and, and and the other thing that is is, is absolutely key, uh, key is this skill set. Um, you know, uh, we lost we've lost it uh, here in the United States, and now this is going to bring it back. Hey, one other great thing about this uh, uh, Chips and Science Act. It also is funding research in critical national security sectors like quantum computing, like 6G, like biotech. And this is this is an area where, you know, United States used to be number one in R&D. We were down at number nine. And one last thing is that when we presented, we are when we architected this bill, we presented to Senator Schumer and Senator Young. And what we showed them is with this level of investment, you're going to get a three times, uh, three-fold additional investment from the private sector.
2: Keith, let me quickly ask you, we only got uh, 30 seconds here, but what do you think about the EV credits? Is that subsidy also important for American jobs and car makers?
5: Well, I, I can I can t- I can tell you what I think. Being you know former CEO of DocuSign and Ariba is that these guys are on the 90-day shot clock, right? And so to be a- this enables you to look long term, and that's key. And by the way, for the for the EV credits, as long as that technology is developed in the U.S., because China owns solar panels, and so we've got to do something about that.
1: All right, Keith. Great stuff. Uh, really appreciate getting your perspective. Keith Kroc, founder of the Kroc Institute for Tech Diplomacy at Purdue. Uh, he was also the former U.S. Undersecretary uh, of State for Economic Growth, Energy, and the Environment.
2: Million jobs, million degrees.
1: The guy yep. used to
2: be a VP at General Motors as well. I know. I mean, got to get kinda, him back on. He's done everything. We yeah, gotta we'll get, him, get,
1: back we'll get him back on. We'll get him next time he's in the city. We'll get him here in, in the studio.
0: The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th.
1: Again, some good economic data over the past few days. Let's check in with Jeff Cleveland. He does this for a living. He's a director and chief economist for Payden and Regal. Hey, Jeff, you, know, you, you put today's CPI data together with you know, a really strong jobs report last week. I don't know. What do you take away from that?
6: Well, you know, it's interesting. The month-to-month reading on core CPI, which slowed to 03 it could be just a fake-out. We had a similar slowdown back in the uh, – I guess it was the March data that we got in April. So, And then we saw core CPI reaccelerate. So for my money, I think it's too soon to claim victory, mission accomplished on, on core inflation. Um could be still moving higher. And 0.3 months a month isn't – I don't think that's enough to change the Fed's – view here. And then as it regards to- you know, So wait, jobs, so Jeff,
2: you think the Fed's still going to go 75 at the next meeting?
6: Yeah, we're going to get another CPI report. We're going to get another jobs report. So as of now, we're, we're sticking with the 75. The reason being, I think you have to put on your central banker hat and you have to think, okay, how do they think that policy affects inflation? And the way they look at it is that they need to get interest rates up enough to push up the unemployment rate. That's their goal. Once the unemployment rate starts to rise, then wage pressure comes off and then inflation, core inflation, slows. We haven't had that happen yet. We had a really strong jobs report. The unemployment rate moved to cycle low. So if you're a central banker, you, I think you're still keeping your, your foot on the brake in, in terms of uh, monetary policy, not slowing down it and definitely not on a, a welcome. But uh, it could just be one month of soft CPI data.
2: Isn't it enough if they just keep wage increases uh, below the level of inflation? Or do they really have to? Do we really have to see jobs losses?
6: Well, I think they're going to be really unhappy with five and a half percent average hourly earnings, productivity at zero or even falling. Um, that situation and the implication for unit labor costs that we saw yesterday—I think that's a really, really bad mix. I'm going to be very unhappy with that. So I do, I do think they want—they don't want to admit it in public—but they want to see the unemployment rate rise, and they want to see wage growth slow back down. Somewhere maybe I think closer to two to three percent is is a good ballpark.
2: Damn, I want a raise uh, <laughs> <too>. that, that's <laughs> equal to or greater than headline CPI. Yeah, you didn't get yeah. that this year, did you? no well I, I i still have the request in and <laughs>
6: i feel like american workers are going to want that too i i'm always sending that request and it keeps getting rejected so <laughs> I, I hear you i think that's uh that's the that's the correct thinking i just um i don't know how realistic that is for me or or for you all right jeff uh
1: again i i asked our guests here should we expect anything from jackson hole uh this month should i make my book my trip out there
6: well, sometimes Jackson Hole is sort of esoteric, right? some fringe kind of topics, maybe not really mainline monetary policy topics, but I feel like this year maybe this year is different. maybe this year is is surrounding the question that we 're going to talk about here, which is how much does the unemployment rate need to rise to get to get inflation back down sort of i don 't know bread and butter monetary policy questions so it it might actually be more. More central to markets than maybe it has been in the the last couple of years. So yeah, this Fed yeah, maybe, seems less. Maybe you should go.
2: This Fed seems less esoteric. I mean, they seem to care about headline inflation, not just core PCE, right? Um, at least, yeah. it it seems important to 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 Powell.
6: Well, headline is tied to gas prices, and gas prices are tied to consumer inflation expectations. So that's I think they're right to care about that. They care about inflation expectations. The question for me is still okay. Where is Uh, inflation, where's the underlying trend of inflation? And I still think looking at headline month to month does not help you with that. You got to look later this morning, look at median CPI from the Cleveland Fed, look at the trim mean, look at the underlying sticky measures, and you're still seeing pretty strong. I look at gasoline and that is it. I'm an equities guy. I
1: keep it nice and simple. (laughs) Gas is coming down, so that's good stuff. Jeff Cleveland, director and chief economist uh, at Payton and Regal. (laughs) Joining us right now in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, Rob Barnett. He's a senior analyst. He leads our energy coverage in uh, Europe. He's based in London, but we got him here in New York. Uh, He's with Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Rob, a story that I think it just fascinates me because I think it's going to get really, really bad. So I'd love to get your perspective. We talk a lot about global energy, and we know that in Europe, primarily due to the war in Ukraine, Europeans and folks in the U.K., you guys are preparing for a really tough winter. Just frame it out for us.
7: Yeah. So for anyone who's not following the gas market, gas in Europe is over $60 per mm MMBTU right now. And where does it typically trade? Oh, fractions of that. I mean, and the U S is at around $8 per mm MMBTU. So we're eight X where the U S is at the moment today. This is going to be a very challenging winter. Now, tariffs are actually regulated by the government so consumers haven't really had to mark to market what they're paying yet so it's going to be tough as the governments phase in those higher prices and yeah i'm stocking up on sweaters just getting ready for <laughs> colder <laughs> showers sweaters everything that we can do to uh, You're in
2: England, right? I mean, you're you're in London, so it's not going to get that bad for you. In Berlin, which is basically in Poland, it's going to be really, (laughs) really cold this winter. And the Germans, I'm going to ask you why, decided to put all of their eggs in Vladimir Putin's basket. Why did Angela Merkel um, make her nation so reliant on this Russian dictator?
7: Well, I think, as, as many of you may know, Germany has had a long history with nuclear power, and they've actually phased most of their nuclear power plants. Out at this point, despite Angela Merkel's history, she she was a nuclear uh, engineer by training, right? So it's interesting choice you made, but the decisions all got made post Fukushima. Everyone got scared about nuclear a little over a decade ago, and that really drove a lot of the decision making around the reliance on gas, because Europe's got a very strong uh, green angle, particularly in Germany. So they they wanted to get off coal. They were concerned about nuclear, and they hitched themselves to gas, and it's turning around. It's going to bite them
2: hard this winter. Even though, you know, the problem in Fukushima was... A tidal wave and an earthquake. And yes. Like that. What do you call that giant wave? Yeah, a tidal wave. over. Tsunami. A tsunami, tsunami, right? Which is so unlikely from the Bodensee, <laughs> right? That's not going to happen in Germany. And yet um, they ran straight to Moscow for all of their energy needs. I used to talk to Dan Briette a lot when he was energy secretary and he would come to Berlin every time he was there trying to pedal um, LNG terminals because he wanted to sell more U.S. gas and they turned him away and and they are trying to make amends for that now
7: germany and other parts of europe are sprinting to get lng import terminals built but those things take a while so this is a multi-year process with no easy solutions in the next 12 to 24 months
2: right in in which time period we could see the rhine river completely dry up we are told that um, the level on, on the Rhine could drop to 16 inches by Friday, making it virtually impassable for the big coal and diesel barges that need to normally deliver energy through those routes. What's gonna happen? Yeah, so there's stockpiles for a little bit of short duration disruption.
7: But if we see this continue, it's just one more factor that's really putting pressure on that gas price that we talked about at the beginning here. And there really aren't easy alternatives in the near term. So you know, how bad does it get? I mean, the reasonable there, there's terminology. There's they're talking about <laughs> the reasonable worst case scenario <laughs> includes. Oh, boy. Mandated power outages and things like that in many of the economies.
2: This, the, the,
1: so we'll see cities go dark. Already seeing that. Are you?
2: Already seeing that in Germany. Oh, yeah. Uh. I mean berlin was pretty much dark at night to begin with because they don't have enough money to pay for power before the (laughs) surge in prices now they've got the big boom in prices plus all the rivers are drying up those that are cooling nuclear plants are are too hot to do so i mean they've just got hit by like a triple whammy right and we've just taken all of this for granted i
7: think in the west we've just always been able to flip the switch and assume that the power is going to work i think a lot of folks in society clearly took their eye off the ball And it's going to take a lot of time to figure this out. And renewables are great. I'm, I'm very pro renewable energy. It's going to, but this stuff is a multi-decade kind of solutions. And they're obviously intermittent. You've got to figure out hydrogen and battery storage and all of these things that we know are on the horizon. But none of them are kind of really here for prime time today. So the reality is today, you got to have some gas supply solutions. You got to have coal in the mix. And you know, for better or worse. Germany should be doing everything it can to keep the nukes that they still have remaining running.
2: They still have the potential to. uh, They have some plants, I think three that are running, and they have the possibility of stretching it out. They're supposed to phase them out by the end of the year. Can't do that. Just a political question. Well, I don't think they can. By the way, Rob, have you seen? There's a Norwegian drama called um, Occupied, which is really fantastic. It's about like the premise is that um, Norway decides to stop exporting gas and oil and so the eu allows russia to occupy norway Great. <laughs> right. which sounds crazy but or it did at the time now it sounds so realistic the geopolitics
7: of energy in europe are just absolutely fascinating and you're right to point out norway is so important to the gas yep. equation one of our analysts who covers equinor he had a focus idea on them earlier this year because they were really poised yep. to benefit because because of being the number two gas supplier into Europe and you've got all these high prices. So some people are actually printing money because of where we are today. Vladimir Putin. Mm -hmm. Yep. Him too.
1: All right, Rob. Thanks so much for joining us. Rob Barnett, senior analyst covering energy out of our London office. He joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. He's at Bloomberg Intelligence.
2: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973.
1: And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.